Hello and welcome to the summer season of Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. This week we're talking about The Countess from Kirribilli, the biography of writer Elizabeth von Arnim by Sydney journalist Joyce Morgan. Elizabeth von Arnim was born Mary Beecham in Sydney in 1866 and eventually married a German count. She had five children and became a best-selling author, hiding behind a veil of anonymity for her entire career, publishing more than 20 books that were admired for their astute social satire, comedy of manners, and darker themes that touched on marital discord and the romantic life of older women. Elizabeth eventually married Frank Lord Russell, brother of philosopher Bertrand Russell, and had an affair with H.G. Wells along the way. She made the most of her wealth and privilege as a generous hostess, but was also known by her guests as a sharp-tongued tease. Morgan's biography is a hugely entertaining and lively narrative about a world that has disappeared. Joyce, welcome to Life Sentences. Good to be with you. Um, Now, can you start by telling us who Elizabeth von Arnim was and give us some dates to kind of anchor her? Elizabeth von Arnim was born in Sydney in 1866. She was the uh, youngest child of a family who were prosperous shipping merchants, but it was very new money. Her father had come out from England as a young man and had made his fortune out here. But her mother was born in Tasmania and she was raised in really in poverty. Her, her uh, family, her father abandoned her when she was a teenager. And so it was it was new wealth. And um, they certainly made the most of that new wealth because they lived in a beautiful mercantile villa on Kirribilli Point. It was a long way from Sydney Harbour. I mean, a short little boat ride, but... At that time, Kirribilli Point was very Arcadian with beautiful eucalyptus trees and a rocky foreshore and, and, you know, of course, the still sparkling sea there. But they look straight across. Uh, If the the house was there today, they would look straight across to the opera house. They could wave to the conductor. And but at that point, Sydney was a very dirty town. I mean, there was sewage running right into the ocean from that spot. Um, there was a lot of crime. Of course, the convict era was not long over. It was a really difficult, um, it was a rough old town, a raffish kind of place. So they were a long way from that in Kirribilli Point. I'm curious about one thing that I think echoes through the book because she has such a fascinating life in terms of her relationship to men. She has two husbands, and we'll come to those in a moment, but also lovers, etc. Her father, her father is wonderful, I think. He's very proud of his daughter. He's very admiring of her talents. He loves her company. He takes her out and about. And I wonder whether you think, I mean, this is foreshadowing and jumping ahead in my kind of, you know, putting things together way. I wonder whether you think that her father is the kind of template of the ideal man in her life, but she never found him. Look, I think that's possible, particularly later on when she got a, a real respect for him. I think he he was an amazing figure. And I found reading his journals, because they were preserved along as, with hers, and I found him such a witty, spiky, 
character and enthusiast. He was a great traveler. He was a restless spirit. And I think she inherited a great deal of those traits from her father. And I think he recognized a kindred spirit in her. Uh, I mean, when I went through uh, his journals, what I found interesting was Elizabeth was the youngest of his children. She was the youngest of six. And he would record some of her little sayings, you know, as a child. And you go, well, that's not so unusual. Lots of doting parents do that. But he didn't do that with the other children. The only thing he noted about them was they had scarlet fever and, you know, sort of childhood illnesses. So it's always like what isn't said that I find quite fascinating. And obviously she, you know, she appealed to his wit and amusement. And he, yeah, he recorded those sorts of things. So I certainly think that she she very much revered him as she got older as she was a writer, he was the one critic whose uh, respect she wanted. She didn't care really about the others, but it, there was a one time when she thought that he hadn't liked one of her books and she was completely devastated. The great irony was that she'd never read his book at the time because he wrote wonderful things in his diary about it. So that was quite, you know, quite... Um, Quite sad that she never actually saw that, perhaps until long after he died. But I think he was very much the ideal man for her. She leaves Kirribilli very early in life and she never returns. And I wonder, since you've had this incredible privilege of immersing yourself in her work, her diaries, her letters, everything, do you get any sense that she had any interest or curiosity about Australia? Once she left, did she leave it completely behind? Uh, was there any yearning, any connection? I think that's quite difficult. She left when she was three years old. And so she would probably wouldn't have had any conscious memories. Um, the, the one thing that she did love was she always really responded to the sort of climates that she would have had in around Sydney. Like she was always miserable in in you know cold English type climates or Pomeranian even. Um, she she really loathed that. But is that a hangover from an Australian you know early years? It's hard to say. Lots of us don't like the English climate, but I think. You know, she certainly, uh, she did write a little bit about, uh, she loved Dame Nellie Melba. Uh, she was a big fan of hers. Whether she even clocked that she was Australian, it's hard to say. I mean, I think really she saw herself as English. And late in life, an academic uh, from Australia wrote to her and asked her about her early years and whether she saw herself as Australian. And she said, really, you know, she didn't have the memories so she, I don't think she did see herself as Australian, unlike her father who kept it. He was here for 20 years and he kept his connections with Australia and with the Australian relatives. I think her connection in terms of, you know, the Antipodes was probably more with her cousin, Catherine Mansfield, her younger cousin. Yeah, we'll come to Catherine in a moment. I think it's very ironic, actually, that in a sense, after Elizabeth's heyday as a bestseller, she fell into sort of oblivion and I suppose fell out of fashion as a writer and was rediscovered, in fact, by an Australian publisher, Carmen Khalil. So there's another Australian thread, isn't there? What happened was that Elizabeth 
was friends with Bertrand Russell. He was her brother-in-law at one point and with his wife, his former wife, Dora. But in the 80s, Carmen was uh, had a conversation with Dora Russell, who, who she also published, Dora. And Dora told her about the connection with um, Bertrand Russell and in particularly with Bertrand Russell's brother, who Elizabeth had so disastrously married and pointed out the connection between one of her books and this disastrous marriage. And it was as a result of that, Carmen reprinted a number of of Elizabeth's books because, as you say, she had been out of print for um, some years after she died in the 40s. And then she, you know, they'd been reprinted and they're constantly being reprinted, at least the best of her books. They don't all stand up, but some of the best are still in print and and new editions uh, keep appearing. It's fantastic. So we've jumped ahead to the second husband. We should go back to the first husband because the first husband is the one who really changes her life. So she marries a Pomeranian aristocrat. Tell us about Henning von Arnim. (laughs) That's right. The Pomeranian aristocrat. He was a widow, um, widower rather. He'd been, he'd lost his first wife about a year or so before he met Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth was then in her sort of early 20s and her father had taken her on a grand tour to Europe. Now, I think the background was he really was thinking it was time he married her off. You know, she was of a marriageable age. She hadn't shown very much interest in men until then. She'd actually been a a music student at the Royal College of Music, and she was very musical. And interestingly, so was uh, the Count von Arnhem. He was uh, quite an accomplished pianist. He'd been taught by Franz Liszt. He was a friend of the Wagner family. Um, So he had a very musical background. Um, And they met at a musical soiree. And it was a whirlwind romance. Uh, within weeks, he had took her to the top of the Duomo in Florence, uh, sweated his way up because he was quite a bit older than there and he was a bit porky by that stage. By the time he had gone down on his knee and he proposed. And she, I think, was startled by the proposal. Uh, but nonetheless, they um, she accepted and... He then whisked not just her, but the family off to Bayreuth, to the home of, you know, the Wagner Festival, because he wanted to introduce her not just to the Wagner family, but to the sort of social set that she would then be mixing with. Because to be married to a a German aristocrat um, was much more rigid, uh, the sort of rules than even marrying into the British aristocracy. It was, there were certain people and classes of people you could interact with and certain that you couldn't. So I think this was part of the reason he wanted to kind of introduce her to his social world there. Um, She couldn't speak German at that stage and he couldn't speak English. So um, perhaps they found the international language of love. Uh, They did talk in French And within uh, about two years, a year or so, they were married and she was she moved with him to initially to his home in Berlin and she became pregnant almost instantly and um, had three little girls within three years. 
So at the same time, I think she she wasn't happy in Berlin. Um, she she was always much happier in kind of natural landscapes. And he had a vast estate near the Baltic. With on and on that vast estate was a ruined. Uh, it had been b- built as a convent in the 17th century and was completely was derelict. It hadn't been lived in for many years. And um, she set about, once she saw that place, she fell in love with it. And she fell in love with the whole environment, the the solitude, the nature. Um, She didn't want to be in a city. So she went about uh, making that into a home and eventually convinced him to, you know, for the whole family to relocate to this beautiful uh, estate with beech trees and lakes and you know there's lots of you know descriptions of in the winter going out on um, a sledge you know horse-drawn sleigh that kind of thing it sounds like quite a you know a a northern German fantasy really the sort of life. So it it would have been a sort of typical schloss in that she it was I suppose a castle might have been ruined but she did it up Um, and it was called Nassenheide wasn't it? It was called Nassenheide. And presumably it no longer exists today I'm guessing that it was bombed at some stage was it? You're absolutely right. It was bombed in the Second World War, uh, the Allied the Allied bombing. So, yeah, sadly, it's in ruins. I'm going to go back to the business about the children because the children are a fascinating element of the story in various ways. It seems to me that Henning may have been in a hurry to marry her because he'd lost his first wife in childbirth and he was obsessed with having an heir. So he wanted to keep going at this children business until he got a son. And she found pregnancy and childbirth really traumatic, didn't she? She wanted to basically give up on sex with him. Yeah. And and I think for quite a while, they did give up on sex. There is quite a a big gap uh, between the first three daughters and the later two children. But yeah, he was absolutely obsessed with, you know, he wanted a son and an heir. I think she was very ill-prepared for motherhood and her first child particularly left her traumatised. She gave birth in Germany and she begged for pain relief and that was denied her because there was a sense that uh, German uh, mothers, you know, these were hardy soul. It was somehow kind of a sign of weakness to have... um, uh, pain relief, uh, so said her doctor, male, and her husband. And I think after that, she, you know, she was terrified of being pregnant. She was also really tiny. I mean, she was only about five foot tall, so she had a very tiny frame anyway. Um, eventually, she started having her children, giving birth to them in England, where her do- her brother was um, a, a doctor and he was delivering them. But she never forgot that experience of the trauma. And she desperately didn't want to be pregnant uh, again and again and again. But she knew that, you know, he wasn't going to, her husband was not going to stop. There was going to be no end to her pregnancies until she'd finally produced the son. He was eventually arrived. He was her fifth fifth child. But after the third, the daughter number three, there was quite a gap between her getting pregnant the next time round. And I I suspect, you know, like there was no safe sex then. Um, There was abstinence. 
And I know when they went together to London, they stayed at the, um, her family's home and they stayed in separate bedrooms. So that suggests to me that at least for a while, there was a period of, um, you know, not having sex. By the way, how do you know that they stayed in separate bedrooms? I, I know that because there was a little reference in her father's journal. He noted it. So I'd gone through his journals very closely and I went, oh, now that's interesting um, that he had made a note of that. He had he didn't comment any further on it. But, you know, you kind of realize, OK, this is a time when there are no children. And she was like, obviously, a woman who, like a mother, who kept having baby after baby. She was very fertile. Yes, that was another part of the problem is that it seemed to me she blinked and she got pregnant. That's, that's right. She pretty much did. Um, so... There were, you know, there was a several years gap. She talked about it having her children in batches. So her first batches, you know, came very quickly. Then there was a break and then the second batch, which was one more girl and finally a son. And how did she integrate then motherhood and writing? I mean, I'm presuming that she lived an incredibly privileged life and that there were staff running around and nannies and governesses and that she could remove herself from the tedium, as it were, of parenthood and just retreat to her wonderful writing stable that she'd set up on the property and just ignore them. A couple of times she left her one or more of her children with her parents in England and I, I actually do suspect that she had postnatal depression. She just was overwhelmed with motherhood, despite having all the privileges of an aristocratic woman. She somehow could was completely overwhelmed. But she went about creating a separate space for herself in which to write. And I think in, in maybe that saved her sanity, really, um, because in all her houses she created a separate, uh, not just a separate room, but a separate building where she would retreat. She wouldn't let her kids in. Um, she wouldn't let anyone in apart from her dogs. They had special dispensation. But she did have that ability to just be able to kind of switch off and write. And it took her several years, I think, to really develop a, a you know, regular habit of writing. But given how prolific she was, she obviously had ability to just ha have intense focus, uh, despite the distractions of several children. And, and look, when she was at the height of the children, when they were all very young, she did kind of stop writing for a year or two um, when she was busy educating them. But yeah, she managed to create a space for herself. in her obsession with anonymity. It begins with her first book about her German garden, which becomes a bestseller uh, and is partly about the garden, but is also about the characters that she meets in her life in the community where she lives, very sharply drawn sort of character sketches. Why do you think this obsession with anonymity at the beginning, but also right at the end? I mean, she was so private, even when her cover had been blown. She never was published under her full name through her whole life. I should say her first book was published anonymously, and there were reasons then. 
she was a you know a Pomeranian countess and it didn't do for her to sully her hands earning money writing commercial fiction. Now that was one reason. I think there was other reasons. And one of them was that it would have if her name had been on it, I mean, even in from her first book, she was quite satirical about some of the Germans around her. Now, you know, she would not have wanted the trail of authorial breadcrumbs to lead back to her. But her anonymity produced, uh, of course, you know, a fascination in the initially the British and then the American and even the, the Australian press. Like who it because she was so popular, she was simply known as Elizabeth, you know, the single name. So her second book was published um with the, the rather awkward kind of tagline by Elizabeth of the German Garden, which is the title, you know, it's really clunky, but that's how it appeared for years. So there was all this feeding frenzy about like, who is Elizabeth of the German Garden? Uh, is she even a woman? Is she English? Is she German? Who is she? And there was like full page stories in newspapers, in New York, in San Francisco, in the Daily Mail in London. like, And they were running all sorts of spe- people up the flagpole. Some of them thought it might be her, but uh, there was Princess Henry of Pless and Princess this and that. All these aristocratic women, none of them had ever written a word. Um, but nonetheless, they ran them all these names up the flagpole. And... This went on for a couple of years. It was only around about 1900 when it was sort of finally, you know, settled that, yes, it was Elizabeth um, Countess von Arnhem as she was. She was she was actually still known as Mary. She was born as Mary Beecham, in fact. But it was eventually settled who her identity was. But she still never used the name. Now, like, so the question is why years later when it was known and I have a, the- a theory that, like, she was intensely private. She she would lie to family. She'd lie to her publishers about aspects of herself. She didn't want it known. And I think there was an element that she felt it might have diminished her, her ability to write or her talent uh, if she was known. Uh, it's a very complex, um, you know, she's a very complex woman in that sense, like, you know, most of us, if we'd written that many bestsellers, we'd want our name on the books. Uh, but no, she, w- she wouldn't. She hid for the whole of her life. That's right. And it was such a sort of cat and mouse game that she was playing with the press. And as you say, even her publisher, you know, she was really adamant with her publisher and and denied her identity on several occasions. I mean, I think it's a really fascinating thing. I can see the reasons for it at the beginning, as you say, when she's still a, a, a Junker aristocrat and has to conform to the protocols of that very straight-laced society. But by the time she's in a more liberal milieu, once she's Countess Russell, you would think that she could kind of out herself then and go, ta-da, but she doesn't. At various periods, there were reasons why she didn't want it known who she was. Like during the First World War, she had a daughter living in Germany. Now, she was writing some fairly you know, critical things about Germany, um, about militarism, about chauvinism, and the, the German sort of psyche, if you like. 
So she feared for how that might reflect on an impact on her daughter um, in two world wars. In fact, she worried about that. So there were some reasons there. Um, but even even so, to my mind, it went beyond uh, what was understandable. And I did come across a, a, an unpublished article she'd written on anonymity um, in her papers. And um, she it was written probably very early on while she was still in Pomerania. And she talked then about how it destroyed, um, you know, why should we kind of want to know what the dirty washing looks like? You know, she, she would have hated the idea of being a, of a biographer. Um, you know, why do people want to know about the people, the person, you know, judging by their writing? That was always, you know, her, her thing. And I, I think, in that sense, she would have hated celebrity culture and and anything like that today. Well, having read all of her work, I'm really curious to know which you think is her best book, uh, which stands the test of time. Yeah, which is your favourite or, or her best book? Okay. Look, I, without a doubt to me, my favourite is her book called Vera, which is a gothic sort of uh dark book although it begins very wittily as all her books do um it's to do with an unraveling marriage and a domestic tyrant and today we would call the behavior of this tyrant in it who's an absolute monster um we call it coercive control and this was written in 1920s before we had such phrases but it's a wonderfully the, it's very atmospheric as well, and set on this this gloomy house in the south, you know, around Sussex. Uh, there's a wonderful scene where she discovers she comes as a young bride to this house, and she discovers all these books there that he keeps locked away, and he has the only key to the books, uh, and that kind of like you know, it, he keeps his books in jail. And uh, and then basically keeps her in jail. That one I think stands up really well. Uh, and there's a number of others that I admire very much uh, that are ahead. Again, they're all sort of ahead of her time um, in their approach to kind of women's relationships with men. There's others in which she talks about women aging and older women as sexual beings. The one about a relationship between a much older man, uh, older woman, and a younger man called love. I, I like that one very much. I like expiation very much. But beyond a doubt, for me, it's Vera that's uh, the top of my pops. Well, from the way you describe Vera, it sounds to me like it sort of anticipates or maybe influences Daphne du Maurier in terms of writing Rebecca. But I'm also curious. I mean, by the time she's writing it. She's married Lord Russell, Frank, hasn't she? And now he is a monstrous husband and it is a disastrous marriage. But I'm curious whether there was a pattern set earlier, because in fact, when she's still married to Henning, she describes an episode where he thumps her and she's quite shocked. And given what you were just saying before about how he persisted with her until he got the air that he was after, do you think that there was a pattern in her life of violence and abuse even before she got to husband number two? Look, I think that is quite possible. 
the episode with her first husband in which uh, they'd started off playful or she she was teasing him, I think, and it developed beyond that and he thumped her and she was very shocked. And that that's the only one she wrote about. Oh, no, she wrote about one other instance in her diary in which he came in and threw a pencil. He broke into her room uh, where she was writing. So it was a real physical invasion of her room and threw a pencil at her. But nonetheless... She never forgot that in, that instance um, of him breaking in, nor the, the thumping either. Um, she didn't uh, chronicle any other episodes, but I did detect there was a pattern of a fractious relationships with men um, and very, very stormy, somewhat dysfunctional relationships with all of them. Uh, I think Frank was the most extreme case, Frank Russell, who um, she married after her first husband died. I think that was the, you know, that was like the absolute worst. Um, But I think there were patterns that you see in her relationship, not just with her first husband, but she then had a very close relationship and possibly an affair with H.G. Wells, the English writer. And again, that was, there was no sense of physical kind of abuse or anything but it was there was constant acrimony in that uh and then of course uh frank russell who really she should she had plenty of warning that this guy was was trouble even his brother found him a bully he was well known as a bully he was a convicted bigamist he had been married twice before and but I think she kind of fell for him very passionately, even though in her later life she wrote a memoir rather distancing herself and calling it doom and she should have known better sort of thing. Her diaries at the time, she was completely smitten with him. Um, he, he was extremely passionate, I think, um, was the other thing that probably her first husband wasn't. Um, he was just he was like a bit always struck me as a the first husband is more interested in his pigs and potatoes than anything else. Um, <laughs> he was a farmer. Um, <laughs> but whereas Russell was uh, initial appearance, he was very eloquent. He would get up in the House of Lords and she did admire his speeches in the House of Lords. And he did champion a lot of liberal causes. But I don't know, he he just turned into something different, according to Elizabeth, obviously, Um once they were married, although the warnings even before they were married were there. And um, he was he was a gambler. He was a womanizer. It's possible he dabbled in cocaine, uh, which wasn't illegal then, but nonetheless, he likely dabbled in it. So suggest to me he, he likely had uh, an addictive personality. Um, and, you know, the marriage, she married him in 1914, um, uh, uh, 16 rather and it was she left him a couple of years later the surprise to me is that it took her as long as it did to leave him because it, I think she kept hoping it would you know that passion or whatever it was she initially saw in him um, that it would come back but she eventually found herself having to ask his permission to even go outside of the house and each time it did, it would end in blood, as she'd say. And I took that metaphorically, but... Uh. Yes, I mean, 
she does describe being held prisoner by him. So I think your your use of the term coercive control to say what how we would judge it today is absolutely right. And then, I mean, you know, yes, there's the whole, you describe all the sort of tempestuous nature of her relationship with H.G. Wells, which at times is almost farcical. And I mean, he, he had so many lovers, it's sort of, you know, it makes your head kind of spin, really, what was going on there. Uh, but she was no slouch in that department herself in that, you know, then towards the sort of latter part of her life, she takes a lover who's what, 30 years her junior? Yeah, he's half her age here. She takes a lover who is in, he's a, a youngish Cambridge graduate in his 20s and she's in her 50s by then. And she's living in Switzerland and she initially hires him to come and um, put her books in order, uh, organize her library, something like that. Anyway, so he arrives at her and spends the summer out at, in Switzerland and they eventually become lovers. And she spends about 10 years of her life with this young man, um, Alexandra Frere. And, you know, they're in each other's company. I don't get the sense that she kept this relationship necessarily secret. She's often at the opera or at concerts with him. So in the social world she she lived in and mixed in, it must have been quite well known. And he was at the chalet in Switzerland with her quite often. Um, I think she knew there was not going to be any future in that relationship. Uh, nonetheless, she was distraught when he did eventually um, marry elsewhere. But that I think... He he also was, you know, not just a young and very handsome, if not very big man. Um, he he was very well read, and she opened the door to him to her kind of literary circle, and in and she sort of smoothed the path into publishing for him, and he eventually became a major publisher. He was the head of Heinemann, you know, he helped forge the careers of you know people like Graham Greene. So he, you know, obviously he was a, a very capable man. And I think they became literary confidants because they'd exchange all sorts of little gossipy comments uh, about the books they were reading or the, pe or the literary people that they'd come across. In that sense, they were, you know, quite in sync. And I think for her, it was quite a good relationship. Yes, I think they would have had some pretty juicy pillow talk, those two. I'm glad that you mentioned Switzerland and the chalet because it sounds delicious. So this is a house that, um, am I right in thinking that Elizabeth built this house? Yes, she did. After she, she was widowed in 1910 when um, the Count died and she didn't obviously want to, she didn't want to stay in Germany. She didn't like Germany. So she looked around uh, where to live. She wanted to build somewhere where she could uh, have her children come for holidays. They were all, you know, boarding school. But I think Switzerland was quite an interesting choice because she had spent part of her childhood in Lucerne with her family when not long after they'd left Australia and they'd gone to England a very restless father suddenly decided they were all off to Switzerland for a year. So in in one sense, it was a familiar place to her. Um, so she set about uh, building a Swiss chalet. It was no little tiny wooden cottage. It was a 16 bedroom uh, 
chalet that was at times taken for a hotel. You know, it was a beautiful and imposing chalet with a fabulous view down the valet. And she was able to have some very sociable, she'd invite a lot of her friends there to spend the summers and her relatives and her children. Um, but she also built herself a little chalet just down the path where she would go and ride. You know, once again, she separated herself away. And, she, you know, she had this incredible mix within her of an intense need for solitude and similarly an intense need for sociability. I think that today we would characterize her as an ambivert. I mean, she would absolutely straddle the extrovert, introvert spectrum, but right down the middle because she absolutely did need to withdraw. And sometimes she felt that her house parties had gone on too long and she'd either leave and shut herself away or she'd get impatient and want her guests to go. But then, you know, come the next season, she'd invite everybody back. Yeah. Look, sometimes it felt to me like there was always with her this kind of terminal uh, intense grass is always greener. Like when she had loads of people around her, she would suddenly get really fed up with them and wish they'd all go. But then she'd be left by herself and she'd go, oh, actually, a little bit lonely at the moment. Um, so, you know, and because she was very successful, she had the ability to indulge both sides of, of that personality. You know, she could go off to London and be at the opera and the theatre every night. And then she could lock herself away in Switzerland and, and refuse all visitors. And, you know, she, she was able to do that. I remember reading somewhere, she says that whenever she got depressed, she would think about her seven toilets in Switzerland. And you think, what was that about? So, you know, did she have a thing about plumbing? I think she probably did ad adopt, you know, certain technology because I remember when she was still living in Pomerania, um, she one of her the tutors that came out there was E.M. Forster, very young and not yet published E.M. Forster, and uh, he she lent him her typewriter. Now that must have been quite a new gadget by then, you know, in the late eighteen hundreds. And he, she showed him how it worked. Now, on a more serious side, um, I want to come to possibly the saddest and, and in some ways most difficult moment in her life for me to understand, which is, the death of her teenage daughter, Felicitas, and the way Elizabeth reacts to it. So tell us where Felicitas is when she dies and, and how that episode unravels. Yeah, look, this is a, a very dark and difficult episode in her life. Her youngest daughter, Felicitas, um, I think in many ways was rather similar to Elizabeth. I think they were both very musical and artistic. Um, her daughter had been at school in Switzerland um, in 1914 when she was accused of stealing at her school. And Elizabeth was so furious uh, it was it was said it wasn't the first time that this girl had stolen 
So she, Elizabeth decided to send her to Germany to a different school. To, she'd been expelled from this school, so she couldn't find her anywhere else in Switzerland appropriate. So she sent her back to Germany um, to a much stricter school. And she, Elizabeth was so furious with her, her, her 16-year-old daughter that she didn't even kiss her goodbye. So they'd left on very bad terms. Now, when World War Two, World War One began, uh, that girl was basically stranded in Germany. She couldn't get her out. Um, it's possible Elizabeth only sent her to Germany as a short-term, uh, you know, punishment, if you like, because Elizabeth could run very hot and cold, and people would like people would fall foul of her and she'd be incandescent, but then it would blow over like a summer storm. But that's not what happened. Events, uh, you know, World War One happened. She, the girl was stranded in Germany and Elizabeth in 1916 got a telegram from Germany just saying that the little girl, the girl had died she didn't know in what circumstances or anything for another three weeks when she learned that um, her daughter had died of pneumonia. So I think, you know, obviously she was grief stricken. Um, she got no, no kind of moral support from Frank. Uh, they'd only been married a few months, but he, you know, it was clear he was not going to offer anything in the way of support, um, you know, emotional or anything so she was like completely the dregs of misery she she referred to it she couldn't obviously go and retrieve the girl's body go to the funeral anything but nor could she really grieve in public for this daughter because publicly I guess the daughter was seen as having died on the wrong side of the war um so it's a very complex grief added to that what must inevitably I think have been her own guilt um that you know, she'd sent this girl off in terrible circumstances, never said goodbye to her. Uh, that was the last she'd seen of her uh, when she packed her off to Germany. So it was an incredibly uh, complex form of grief, I think, that she must have um, undergone. But she rather, Elizabeth's reaction was to blame the war for that girl's death. Now, really, um, in, in one sense, yes, maybe. Um, but in the other, I think that was not really taking responsibility for her own role in this girl's death. And she never made any comment about that um, Felicitas's death. In fact, she rarely uh, ever mentioned that little girl in her diaries. Unlike her other relatives, she would often remember their birthdays, their anniversaries, years and years afterwards. So it was no mistake. It was almost like it. I don't know if it was something completely unresolved um, or that the grief was so deep that she just could not bear to go anywhere near it. So it's a very sad episode. to know Joyce when you went through her papers her papers are in the Huntingdon Library and they're basically there I'm presuming simply by virtue of the fact that she died in America yes her daughter she did she died in America her daughter also lived in America 
um, one of her daughters, who rounded up the papers after her death. Were there things that you found in the papers in the Huntingdon Library that were, you know, one of those aha moments? Look, for me, one one of the great joys of uh, being in the Huntington, working with her papers and her journals, were putting together, because she wrote, you know, semi-autobiographical, and often she was uh, writing quite, I won't say sentimental, but, you know, they were obviously somewhat varnished, some of what she was writing, but then to look at exactly what was going on in her life at the same time, I think that was the moment that I could kind of go, oh, my God, how did she do this? So, for example, she only wrote one children's book. And it was like a uh, it was illustrated by Kate Greenway with beautiful, charming Victorian images of these three little girls all in gorgeous cherry red, you know, little bonnets and things. And, a, you know, a charming book. But at the time, um, the Count was in jail. He'd been arrested on somewhat trumped up charges. She was alone at the Schloss trying to manage the the entire property. Um, Nobody came to visit her. She seemed to be abandoned by his relatives. She was visiting her her husband in prison. But she also had... Uh, her fo- had just given birth to her fourth daughter, the one who eventually died young, um, and was trying to manage that at the same time. So it was only when I pieced them together and went, oh, my God, you know, how do you polish, you know, produce this romantic, charming children's book when your life is actually, right now, it's really miserable. So that those were the sort of things that kind of really hit me. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's it suggests that she had an incredible ability to compartmentalize, but obviously maybe that escape into fantasy was very welcome relief from the shame of the fact that her husband had been accused, I think, of embezzlement. As you say, she was being ostracized, she was a new mother. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on, but obviously she knew how once she went into the, the converted stable to write, she knew how to keep those doors shut and escape into another world. I'm curious about what you make of the fact that several people comment on her work having some resemblance to the sort of social satire of Jane Austen. You know, she's often dismissed, I think, as being frivolous and fluffy, but at the same time, there are some some of her fans compare her favourably with Jane Austen. Mm. Look, she was often compared at the time uh, throughout her life. She was compared to Jane Austen and she still is. Uh, I actually think she's much darker uh, and she's, she's very funny. But there's always a dark um, and spiky edge and more so as she got older. When you look at the sort of uh, subjects that she tackled things like you know constant pregnancies um relationships between older women younger men um you know the incompatibility of the hopelessness of certain marriages that kind of thing i mean they are social satires but there's uh, the controlling influence of fathers that kind of thing i i actually find that her much darker than um uh than she's often uh credited with um, i mean she can write very brightly and breezily and most obviously in 
probably her best loved book today, The Enchanted April. That's a very romantic book. Uh, but nonetheless, that's based on four women who are all unhappy with their relationships with men for various reasons. Um, I do find her much more spiky uh, at her best than Jane Austen. Well, now that's particularly interesting, I think, in terms of her relationship to her cousin, Catherine Mansfield, a much younger writer uh, who died, obviously, much younger too, tragically, as a result of tuberculosis. And I think what's so interesting in your biography is the way their relationship shifts and evolves. So it's said that it was a book of Elizabeth's that was given to Catherine that made Catherine initially decide she wanted to be a writer. So in some sense, she may have looked up to her cousin. But then she was sort of dismissive of her as being sort of vulgar and too caught up in the trappings of wealth and all of that privilege, whereas Catherine lived a life which was so frugal and austere. So can you just talk about the dynamic between these two women? Yeah, look, they first met in London when, by which time Elizabeth was a very successful writer and um, she went to visit Catherine who'd reviewed one of her books and she hadn't really known Catherine until then. Um, the meeting uh, didn't go well, uh, at least from Catherine's point of view. She talked, she, she, Catherine left this incredible description of Elizabeth's hands like little parasites creeping towards the bread and butter. It was a like it was a pretty, pretty vicious kind of uh, description. Um, so didn't exactly get off to a great start. Nonetheless, uh, Catherine eventually moved to Switzerland, uh, very close to Elizabeth, um, about as Elizabeth put it, a half hour scramble up the hill, which it might have been for Elizabeth. She was very fit. Certainly wasn't for Catherine, who couldn't really leave her chalet because um, Catherine was much younger. She was suffering from TB. So she had moved there, you know, to hope her health would improve, um, to move there with her husband, um, John Middleton Murray, who often came down to visit um, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth would go up and visit, spend time with Catherine. They'd, take, they'd talk about books. But the dynamic kept shifting between them. And they clearly did care for each other in their writing and it, when they wrote letters to each other. But there was an unease often in person. Um, and one time, Elizabeth had gone up to the chalet to visit Catherine and had made some rather clumsy comment about a short story that Catherine had written. And she, Elizabeth had described it as a pretty little story. Well, I think it was, yes, it was a little awkward and clumsy and patronising. And it left Catherine so incandescent that as soon as Elizabeth left, Catherine sat down and wrote a short piece about a a woman socialite, a wealthy woman who picks up this poor young gal and basically discards her when she's no longer useful to her. And, um, uh, you know, she left a note that, you know, no one would ever describe this story as pretty. Um, so there was an unease. I mean, they, they eventually got beyond that. Um, but years later, after Catherine had died, Elizabeth did discover that, first of all, Catherine had dedicated a book of poems to her and also had 
acknowledge that she didn't, Catherine also didn't feel easy in her cousin's company. So even though they had, they did, worms of the same family, I think Catherine described them. There was something about them they recognised as kindred and kin spirits, but it was an uneasy friendship. Uh, and I guess it was straddling um, different centuries. You know, one of them belonged to a sort of very Baroque, very ornate century, and one of them belonged to a, a century where literature was being pared down in the experiment of modernism and going in a completely different direction, as was music, as was everything. I mean, everything changed between the time that Elizabeth was born and the time that Catherine became Catherine Mansfield. Yeah, look, I think that's a really good point. That I think there was definitely that very different sensibility and approach to writing. But also from Catherine's perspective, here was Elizabeth, who was so much more successful, uh, wealthy, uh, whereas Catherine was still, you know, struggling. I mean, she never really became wealthy, but she wasn't getting the recognition, whereas Elizabeth's books were reviewed everywhere. And, you know, perhaps she felt a certain envy of her cousin. Uh, I think that, you know, it might have been as simple as that. She was somewhat envious. And, of course, she, there was Elizabeth in robust good health, whereas Catherine, you know, was, was so sick that she sometimes couldn't get out of bed at that point. Yes, I, I, I found it very moving when they were able to have some kind of rapprochement because it had been such a, a bumpy ride. And I think there was also something spiky, wasn't there, with Virginia Woolf as well? Yeah, look, that was another example where you look at what she, uh, you put her diaries beside what she'd actually written about Virginia Woolf. She wrote this most bizarre review of um, A Room of One's Own for one of the literary papers in London. And it actually really takes apart, um, you know, like rooms don't make women, um, don't make writers. It's quite shocking to read it. And I was open mouthed when I read that. And I thought, how can I, I've got to try and understand this. How do I understand it? And for me, there was a clue in the fact that she had written it under a male pseudonym, that review, and, uh, under the name of Oliver Way. Now, I my suspicion is that she had created this arrogant male persona um, to write this review, uh, proving every point Virginia Woolf kind of made in her essay by adopting this, you know, great critical voice, kind of male voice. Um, and I looked also at her diaries and it was quite clear and letters, it was quite clear she really admired Virginia Woolf. Um, she thought she was a, a, a fantastic writer. So I thought, how to explain that? And, and that's the only sense I can make of it. And it's so ironic, isn't it? Because in fact, I mean, she knew full well that she had taken advantage of a room of her own. She'd built herself, as you say, a little offshoot chalet. She'd taken over the stables at Nassenheider to get away from everything. She knew how crucial it was that a woman have her financial independence. She knew that she had the privilege of wealth and she enjoyed it. And she knew how to give herself privacy when she needed it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you take that review that she wrote at face value, you go, well, this is pretty rich coming from a woman who has got a 16-bedroom chalet. You mentioned Vera, and that's your favourite. 
I'm quite intrigued by Mrs. Skeffington, which is a later book. Um, if I have to pick one book to start with, where should I start, do you think? One book to start with. Okay. I really like um, Expiation, which has recently been republished. And that's to do with a woman, a widow. She's a new widow. And it uncovers the fact, it, it unfolds that she has for many, many years had an affair with um, a man. And um, that's not giving anything away. That's right at the beginning of the book and how she's treated and how this unfolds. I really like expiation. I think that's fantastic. Uh, it is a social satire. I really enjoyed that one. I think that's very good. So I'd have a look at that one. The Countess from Kiribilli brings Elizabeth von Arnim out of the shadows as a writer worthy of fresh consideration. The film of The Enchanted April is another way of connecting with her work. Funnily enough, Joyce Morgan's is not the only book about von Arnim to have appeared recently. The Australian writer Gabrielle Carey wrote a more personal appreciation of von Arnim as a writer with a capacity for happiness, particularly in connection with nature, in a sort of hybrid memoir biography called Only Happiness Here, which is the motto that Elizabeth had carved above the doorway of that well-plumbed Swiss chalet that you heard about. I enjoyed her perspective, which gives von Arnim a new appeal. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The podcast is produced by Jennifer Macy and by David Roach for Two Heads Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown and licensed by Lily Pilly IP. Listener.